they're not difficult solutions because we've already seen other countries be able to tackle it and it works very well. We just need we need that that critical idea that it's time to do the things that we know we need to do. Because if I ran as someone who said, I'm just going to cut your taxes, boy, I could probably get a lot of votes. But all I'm doing is telling you that you don't have to pay more, but your children and grandchildren are going to have to pay a lot more. That That's just fundamentally wrong to do that. As you're scrolling through your news feed or clicking through YouTube videos, you might hear something like this. Will you shut Who is up, man? Listen, in, in, China ate your lunch, Joe. You're the, the worst way, you president in America has ever had. Hey, hey, Come Joe, on. Me... I'm not here to call out his lies. Everybody knows he's a liar. But you I just agree. want to hey, make Joe, sure. Joe, you're the liar. I, 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 I want to make sure. You graduated last in your class, I, not I, first in your I, class. <laughs> Anyone who's been following the upcoming election probably feels a sense of exhaustion or even despair at this point. The rhetoric on the national stage is something that inspired Bridge City from its inception to look to the local for conversations that feel a bit less toxic. So today we're looking to a local congressional race to bring us closer to home and away from the presidential election, specifically Congressional District 5. Uniquely, this is the only district in Wisconsin without an incumbent running in the general election. This means something that political scientists call the incumbency advantage is not at play. In short, if you're looking to predict who will win in an election one of the best indicators is something pretty simple and not very exciting it's the person who won last time for a variety of reasons simply being the incumbent gives you a three to ten percent advantage depending on the year district five in wisconsin is the only district without an incumbent Despite this, the district itself is seen as a Republican stronghold. For close to 20 years, a Republican named Jim Sensenbrenner has safely held the seat. Here he is speaking about Trump's impeachment earlier this year. We're here because the majority caucus, the Democratic caucus, has been hijacked by the radical left. They have wanted to reverse the course of the 2016 election ever since Donald J. Trump won that election. And before he represented District 5, he represented a different district for 24 years. In 2018, though, he had his closest race yet. Well, relative to past years, it was close. Tom Palsiewicz still lost by 24 points in that race. But in 2020, Jim is retiring. So the seat is vacant for the first time in a long time. So today we're going to hear from Tom, who's running again in 2020, looking to shake up Wisconsin politics and flip a congressional seat for the first time in a long time here in Wisconsin. We should note that we invited Tom's opponent, State Senator Scott Fitzgerald on, but he did not respond to multiple requests. In addition, State Senator Fitzgerald's website does not provide any specifics on his campaign's perspectives around the particular issues we discussed with Tom. So I encourage you to sort of search for that, uh, search for his opponent's perspective um, to make an informed decision in the upcoming race. You're listening to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas that inspire Milwaukee to action. I'm your host, Benjamin Rangel, and here's my interview with Tom Palzowicz, candidate for the House of Representatives in Wisconsin's 5th District. I grew up in, in southeast Wisconsin. I um, went to Brown Deer High School a long time ago, uh, went to Madison for a couple of years, and then decided to join the Navy. So I was in the Navy for six years. I was on a nuclear submarine for four of those years, traveled around the world. 
And when I got out of the Navy, I came back to um, Southeast Wisconsin, won TUWM, got an accounting degree and went into banking for 15 years. And, and really what that taught me was um, how the economy works. So I would deal with Wall Street, I would deal with Main Street, and I would really try to figure out, all right, how do you mitigate risk? But how do you really help people uh, get to where they want to go? And then for the last 15 years, I've been a business and executive coach, really working with businesses and people to help them uh, really grow as, a, as an individual and grow as a business and get the most out of it. All those skills just taught me that uh, if you want to change the world, you actually have to do something because uh, the world won't change without you jumping in and doing it. And I saw Jim Sensenbrenner uh, running, you know, for 40 years. And I don't want to say unimposed because there were quite a few people that took him on, but it's just very hard in a gerrymander district. And um, just jumped in, in in 2017 and started running and met a lot of great people along the way. And and here we are facing Scott Fitzgerald in an open seat and thankful for all the relationships we've been able to make along the way. Yeah. And I believe in that introduction, you answered maybe three or got to three <laughs> of my, my initial questions here, which is perfectly fine. We'll maybe take a little bit deeper in some of that. But I want to uh, let the listeners know, I mean, as you mentioned, you're running for Congress. Uh, there's a vacant seat for the first time in a long time. Uh, what motivated you to run? And uh, again, you ran in 2018 and then now again here in 2020. So what's your motivation uh, to run for Congress? Well, the first time was the 2016 election. And I just remember having lots of discussions with people in that summer of 2016 and hoping that Trump wouldn't get elected. But when he did, I thought, OK, maybe it won't be as as bad as we think. And that that first 60 days taught me that if if if. I want to make sure that this doesn't happen again. I better get my butt moving. I believe that everybody has a role to play, and it's important to understand what role you can play. And me in the 5th Congressional District, being a Navy veteran, having worked in banking and having run my own small business, I thought it's it's hard for someone else to have those kind of credentials and just jump in and do it. And so we jumped into the race against Sensenbrenner. You know, when I turned 18 a long time ago, he was my congressman, and, and when I was running in 17, I was, I was 55 and he was still my congressman. I thought that's just fundamentally wrong. So I thought maybe I could be a good candidate and convince some people this, there was a different, better way to do things. And we took a 70, 30 district, you know, historically he had won 70% of the vote and whoever was running against him won 30%. And we took that 40 point gap and turned it into a 24 point gap. At the end of the day, we helped get Ramit Vining elected to the 14th Assembly District, we actually helped put Governor Evers and uh, his team in the governor's mansion. And we feel really good about those results, but it wasn't enough. We really wanted to make sure that the 5th Congressional District had better representation. And uh, when Sensenbrenner retired in September of 2019, we were ready to go again. And we jumped in because it's an open seat. And you know, as of today, our polling shows us that we think the spread is somewhere around 10 points. So we've taken that 40-point district and turned it into a 10-point district uh, 50 days before the election. Yeah, and again, you're, you're sort of uh, predicting my questions here, but I just wanted the listeners to get even a better sense of this seat that you're running for, which, as you mentioned, belonged to Jim Sensenbrenner for um, over 40 years, the second longest-serving member of the House currently and when he retires, he will be the longest serving congressman from Wisconsin in our state's history. 
And as you mentioned, in 2018, you lost by 24 points. Despite that large margin, it was the closest, as you sort of alluded to, the closest any Democrat has gotten to beating Sensenbrenner since uh, the redistricting kind of changed his district and put him, put him in District 5 there, which was um, after 2000. Uh, so aside from Sensenbrenner being gone, aside from the sort of um, the uh, positive results in 2018, as you referenced with Governor Evers and in, in, in Vining uh, in that area, uh, what's different about 2020 compared to 2018? Two things. Uh, first and foremost is the demographic shifts in the district are continuing. And what we saw is we've seen a lot more young people move into the 5th Congressional District in uh, communities like West Dallas and Wauwatosa and Elm Grove and Germantown and Menominee Falls. And if you go out to the western side of the district, you've got Fort Atkinson, you've got Lake Mills, you've got Jefferson. And those, those communities are really turning a lot more purple than red. And so this bastion, this 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 um, red bastion that has been going on for a long time, is really starting to move a lot more purple. But what that means is, is that people are saying, look, yeah, we want lower taxes, but we also want better roads. We want good schools. We want we don't want gun violence uh, continuing to be a problem in mean, having our children to go and do um, you know uh, shooter safety drills. We want somebody who's serious about science and wants to do something about the climate crisis. We need better healthcare alternatives. You know, universal healthcare is something that when you, when I sit down and explain it to people, they go, yeah, that, I think that makes a lot of sense because it helps create more jobs. It helps people get, start businesses. It helps with job uh, portability and mobility and all those things. So those demographic changes are huge. But the other really important thing is people are sick of the divisiveness. People don't want it. Uh, and for the last, you know, close to four years now with our president, we wake up every day and the news media teaches us that we have to figure out what do we what do we want to be outraged today about, about whatever he tweeted. And everybody's just absolutely sick of that. They would like government to work behind the scenes. Thank you very much. And make sure their communities are safe. Make sure they there's a handle on the bigger picture things. Make sure there's a decent infrastructure that allows people to go and do what they want to do. And that's what people want. They don't want people fighting or worse, like my opponent, Scott Fitzgerald, not doing anything. Uh, it's been over 120 days now since they've even met. And every time the governor wants them to meet, they gavel in and gavel out. People want progress. Our, our actual... Our, our campaign slogan is progress over partisanship because people want changes to happen. Even if even if they don't agree, sometimes they're even the right changes. Let's move toward a path toward change and to make our lives better. So that's the, the two big things that are happening in the district. I do want to get a little bit more specific in terms of your background. You mentioned earlier and on your website, you highlight the fact that you have a background in banking and that during the 2008 financial crisis, your time as the treasurer at U.S. Bank Mortgage Corporation. First clarify, if you will, sort of were you with U.S. Bank in 2008 or was it preceding the 2008 financial crisis that you were working with U.S. Bank? Yeah, it was proceeding. So I was the, the treasurer of the mortgage company from 2000 to 2005, okay. which if you if you know anything about the mortgage industry, those were really the, it was like the heyday of mortgages. So all the, they call them NINA loans, no income, no asset verification loans. There was a whole bunch of, of lending going on where the, the rules and regulations were really downplayed and they were rife for fraud. And, you know, people 
not knowing if they could even afford a loan, banks were basically lining up the wheelbarrow of money to give to people because Fannie and Freddie, uh, which are large uh, aggregators of loans, wanted more and more product to feed into Wall Street. Lots of mortgage companies that ended up going out of business because they took way too much risk and they were basically allowed to do it. Yeah. And so how would your experience and, and sort of the knowledge that you gained from your time there, uh, how do you think that's prepared you for a role in Congress? Well, part of it is, is that Wall Street doesn't work for Main Street. And I like to, you know, and I've got a very unique position where I've been working with and have owned a small business for a long period of time, but I also dealt with extremely large businesses and dealt with Wall Street. And one of the things I realized a long time ago is that those two aren't connected at all. And most of the jobs in our country come from our ability to grow Main Street and Wall Street is all about aggregation. And really, they're about taking away those jobs. And not because that's what they want to do. It's because the aggregation creates more and more money that they can take a slice off of and make more. And so we need a balance. We need a much better balance in our society of of, of having somebody who understands where we need to have checks and balances with Wall Street because we need Wall Street, but we don't need it unchecked. And there's been way too many things that Wall Street has been able to do that have basically torpedoed our economy. They took our economy down in in 2008 and 2009 and Main Street paid the price and Wall Street didn't. And Wall Street got back on their feet very quickly and it took Main Street a long time and it was just finally happening. And now all of a sudden this pandemic is now setting a whole bunch of other people back. So we need people that, under, that are in Washington that understand that and can stick up to make sure that the rights of people um, are protected when it comes to money because money is one of the one thing it's it's one of the few things that people have an understanding of but they don't really have a great understanding of and they need to know that there's somebody looking out for their best interests and over and over again it's been shown that the um, the Wall Street and the and the SEC just aren't interested in looking out for the people in Main Street. And uh, you stating that as sort of a, a central perspective of of, of your campaign, uh, I assume, is juxtapositioning yourself from your opponent Scott Fitzgerald and sort of his approach uh, uh, of his approach to Wall Street and Main Street. Yeah, is that I, I, I can't tell you what his approach to Wall Street is. If you go to his website, I, there's no policies or anything else. He's for whatever President Trump's for, but he's also for lowering taxes. And I don't think there's any t there's no, there's no tax base that he, he looks at and says, we can't lower it. And all that's done, and if you've lived in Wisconsin over the last 10 years, you realize all it's done is degrade all the services that one of the things we value in Wisconsin is our quality of life. And our roads are now, you know, we're down in the bottom 10 of all the states in the country as far as, you know, the quality of our roads. Uh, the inequality in our school districts continues to rise. But it's all about money. And it's all about um, understanding that we've created this society where it takes a, a pool of money to make sure that everybody has bootstraps to pull up is the way I like to talk about it, is that because bootstraps are education, healthcare, and being able to get paid a living wage when you have a full-time job. Because when we have those things in our society, it, it helps people understand that once you have those things, you can build on those and go do anything you want. But when those are missing, it makes it incredibly hard for people to get out of poverty and they end up getting stuck there. And my opponent just doesn't seem to either understand that or care. He just wants to keep cutting taxes at the state. And my guess is when he gets to the federal level, if, that's, if that happens, he's just 
just going to be all for cutting more to more and more taxes. Yeah, and um, I want to shift a little bit to a different issue here uh, in Wisconsin, particularly here in southeast in the southeastern part of the state. Uh, over the past summer, we've experienced days and days of protest against police brutality and racial injustice. Of the issues on your website, you include a ton. You got a lot of information there in terms of your perspective and your policies, from healthcare to climate change to gun violence, so on and so forth. Uh, one issue that was missing, though, was a policy on racial justice or police reform. Can you share with our listeners what your perspective on that issue is? Oh yeah, I'm. It, for, from our perspective, um, one of the things that I think it was a game changer, and this happened in April of 2019, is Milwaukee County declared racism a public health crisis. And what that did in Milwaukee County is it forced the county to really start re-examining things through the lens of racial equity. And now, and I don't know if you know this, but now there are another 80 communities across the country that have adopted exactly the same thing. And that is the beginning for how we're going to be able to start to dismantle systemic racism. Uh, One of the things I want to do when I get to Washington is look at the budget through the lens of racial equity. How is our federal budget actually hindering... um, our society, or is it actually helping to break down the, the that systemic approach to racism? Because that's where it starts. It starts with the programs that we have. It starts with how we um, how we take money from uh, different states and bring them to the federal level, and then bring them back to the state level. So, um, and I'm all for. I'm I'm definitely not for this idea. It, and people talk about defunding the police. It's not about defunding the police. It's about reinvesting. And it's time to move some money away from using the police for every single call to being able to, to have the call go to the right place. And once again, I'm looking to Milwaukee County and they're really starting to, to come up with a great game plan on this where that 911 call comes in and they decide whether it's a mental health issue or whether it's a police issue. And they're going to be able to set up a system here. It sounds like pretty soon that's going to have an impact to say, all right, we're going to send out some mental health professionals or we're going to send the police versus always sending the police into those situations because we've all seen the results of that. So those are the big things that I'm seeing that are going to be changing. And, and there is this, there is this recognition that if finally that, you know, we haven't, we haven't overcome racism. We haven't quote conquered it yet. And I'm not talking about individual racism. I'm talking about the racism that exists structurally that holds people back, even when it's not, run uh, by people who are actually racist. It's just part of the system. Uh, Redlining was part of that system. The way our um, education system was set up is part of that system. Our criminal justice system is part of that system. And it's looking at all those things through a different lens and saying it's time to dismantle it. And I personally believe, and this is one of the the other reasons um, we're running this campaign this time, the way we're running it, is if if me as a white man, if I don't speak up about this issue, if I'm not part of the solution, I am continuing to be part of the problem. Yeah. And to be clear, too, I kind of referenced your website leading into that question. And as you said earlier, uh, Scott Fitzgerald, your opponent, doesn't have uh, any information about any issues on his website, including anything on racial justice or police reform. So I just want to throw that in there for the listeners. Wasn't picking on your website. In fact, I encourage folks who are interested to learn more to, to check that out. I'm sure you were going to make that plug uh, as well. Um, and so I wish we had a ton of more time to talk about all the issues because it's clear you've thought critically about things and that you have a perspective on a lot of the most important issues facing us uh, now and in, into the future 
Uh, I mentioned climate change, rural and agricultural issues, income inequality, so on and so forth, veterans issues. Um, but if there if there's one specific issue that you're like particularly passionate about uh, that we haven't talked about yet, what issue is that and what should voters know about your take on that issue? I think the the, the biggest existential issue we face today uh, on our planet is climate crisis. I think everybody can see what's happening in the West with the fires right now. And that is, um, according to experts, that is just the beginning of what will be happening or accelerating over the next uh, 10, 15, 20 years. And a lot of people think about, well, what's our plan to go to zero emissions by 2050? We don't have till 2050. And, you know, be, me, I'm, I'm on the edge of being a baby boomer. So I'm part of the baby boomer generation. And I personally believe that we've let the um, young people down in our society. We haven't done the things that we needed to do and in order to change our infrastructure and energy infrastructure to make it much more green and and start to actually put less carbon in the air but more importantly start to figure out a way to get some of it out and and it is by far one of the worst things we've done as a generation to the next generation and it needs to start changing now. So I'd love to see a plan in place that would take us to zero emissions somewhere between 2030 and 2040. That really has to be the goal. And it, you know, and people talk about how expensive it's going to be, but there are some incredibly technological changes that are coming down the pipeline uh, that are really going to help make that happen. There's lots of smart people working on technology, um, you know, be it be it cold fusion, be it uh, room temperature superconductivity, um, be it battery power. You know, all these things are going to work together, but we need to work toward a cleaner energy grid and we need to do that a lot faster than we're doing now. So it's one of the issues I am incredibly passionate about. I feel confident in my colleagues when I get to Washington being able to handle health care. I want to be involved in income inequality. I want to be involved in solving systemic racism, and I want to be involved in solving the climate crisis. Those are the things that I am passionate about and I care about. Yeah, and I can, uh, I'm sort of familiar with the rhetoric on the other side of the aisle related to some of the issues you talked about, climate change, uh, health care, um, and I can envision potentially somebody an opponent of yours or somebody on the other side kind of referring to your platform as socialist or radical leftist. Uh, Tom, would you consider consider yourself a radical leftist or, or sort of how do you <laughs> respond to that articulation, which again, I'm just kind of predicting what I might hear on the right. Oh yeah. And I, I can only chuckle because actually the, the first time I ran the first couple months, I was accused of, of, of being a Republican. You know, people thought, you know, <laughs> who, who is this guy? Why is, why is this guy running? Uh, and why is he running as a Democrat? I would laugh because I'm thinking, well, if I really want to win, I'd probably run as a Republican. I wouldn't run as a Democrat in a 40 point district. But, but, but here's the thing is these these are solutions to issues that we know we're going to have to do sooner rather than later. And it, it takes, you know, the way I describe it is somebody needs to be the adult in the room. Somebody needs to say, look, we need to start sharing some sacrifice in order to uh, do it now so that the, the future is a lot less painful. And hopefully it's a lot better for our children and grandchildren. I mean, I always look at it as like working out. You know, I don't know a lot of people who just absolutely love to work out. But as you get older, working out becomes generally, you know, incredibly important. And the fact is you're not working out for who you are now. You're working out for who you want to be 20 years from now. And that is exactly the kind of um, um, 
idea that we need to bring to Congress is Congress is we not we need to start figuring out where are the things we need to be investing more in, in so that the people down the road who's ever, you know, going to be in our country in 2050, 2075, 2100, whoever those people are can benefit from the decisions we make today instead of left holding the bag. I mean, we've got debt of close to $27 trillion like right now. Somebody's going to have to pay that off. And for us to keep cutting taxes, to me, is just unconscionable. Climate crisis, we need to start doing something. Healthcare, it's become incredibly obvious that our, our healthcare system isn't working and the pandemic has just made it worse. And these are, these are they're not difficult solutions because we've already seen other countries be able to tackle it and it works very well. We just need, we need that, that critical idea that it's time to do the things that we know we need to do. Because if I ran as someone who said, I'm just going to cut your taxes, boy, I could probably get a lot of votes. But I'm, I'm, all I'm doing is telling you that you don't have to pay more, but your children and grandchildren are going to have to pay a lot more. That, that's right. just fundamentally wrong to do that. Yeah, you don't have to contribute towards the solution. Somebody else will down the line, right? Right. Um, well, thank you so much. Uh, we have one last question, a question that we end every single episode with on Purchase City. Our podcast is really focused on, on action and how people can get involved and make a difference in their community. And so for folks running for office, we usually let them do two action steps. One general action step related to the campaign, a website or something you would like listeners to do if they listen to you and they're interested in, in helping you uh, in this campaign. And then a second action step just generally uh, some advice you'd give to someone on how to get involved and make a difference in their community at large. Yeah, excellent. Um, first off, it's TomForWI.com. So T-O-M-F-O-R-W-I.com. We didn't put my last name in there. It makes it a lot simpler. But the bottom line there is is go to our website. Take a look. Um, pass it along. Let other people know about our campaign. Um, my campaign manager, Chelsea Cross, she uh she continually goes, I'm so glad I'm part of this campaign. I really didn't understand what you were trying to accomplish. I knew you were you were you were trying to make this happen in the fifth, but now I now that I know who you are and what you're trying to do, she's a hundred percent committed to making sure this can happen. So we need people to spread the word. Because the fifth congressional district is usually one of those districts where people go, Oh, that's Waukesha County. No Democrat can get elected there, but a Democrat can get elected here. So that's that's first and foremost. The second one is is I'm a I'm a firm believer that everyone has a role to play. You just got to figure out what your role is. Is it phone banking? Is it texting? Is it donating? Is it putting up a yard sign? Is it telling people whatever it is? Get involved. If you don't like it, be that voice for change. Be that. That be that person that's going to put progress over partisanship and demand more of your elected officials. And if you don't like it, run yourself because there's nobody that's going to stop you but you. So jump into the ring. Uh, you're going to learn a lot, lot about yourself or go help a campaign because every campaign needs volunteers. Um, and if you don't want to volunteer for a campaign, get people to vote. I don't think there's any stronger way than to show uh, if you believe in the vision of the United States, then to get more people out to vote. Thank you so much for listening to Bridge the City. A few important dates to keep in mind as the election nears. October 14th is the deadline to register to vote by mail or online. October 20th is the start of in-person early voting here in Milwaukee. October 29th is the deadline to request an absentee ballot. 
October 30th is the deadline to register to vote at your municipal clerk's office. And of course, November 3rd is the election. Remember, if you missed any deadlines to register, you can register in person at the polls. Thanks to Tom Palzowicz and his campaign for speaking with us. This episode was produced by me, Benjamin Rangel, edited by Sam Woods, music by Casey Masters. If you like what you heard today, please consider supporting us on patreon.com slash bridge the city. As always, let us know how you have helped bridge the city. Bridge the city.